Welcome to this edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. Today, I've got Deepak Chopra. Why would I have Deepak Chopra on the Into the Impossible podcast? Well, you're about to find out. He's been called many things, most of which are not very kind and befitting of him, but I found him to be incredibly intelligent, brilliant, even in his explication of what it means to be human and even what he calls metahuman. We talked about a few things today that will really blow your mind as it did for me, including what his daily routine is, how he uh, has achieved such stunning success materially and otherwise. We'll also talk about what he calls the four phases of life and how that has helped him confront the anxiety of his eventual death. And finally, we'll talk about ways that he believes that are backed by Nobel Prize-led research here in the San Diego area, uh, that life can be extended through some of the tools which he provides uh, on this episode. And that includes uh, ways to think about uh, meditation and contemplation as a practice. And last but not least, you'll get to hear how Deepak upgraded, 10X'd my previous mantra from TM, Transcendental Meditation, from the original one that I got, which was schmuck, uh, to a new one. You'll have to tune into the end to find out what that is. You're going to enjoy this ride with none other than Deepak Chopra. You won't want to miss how he describes how he's perceived by other scientists like me, but he is an incredibly uh, intelligent, cheerful, humble human being. And I greatly enjoyed this episode. I know you will too. Please share comments in the uh, links below. Uh, please subscribe to the Into the Impossible podcast. And I'm looking forward to having him and his colleague, Don Hoffman, and Leonard Malad now uh, on again, as well as Frank Wilczek, winner of the Nobel Prize. You'll hear a shout out to Frank Wilczek from Deepak and their collaboration together will uh, convince you, if nothing else will, uh, that Deepak is to be taken seriously, even by so-called serious scientists like myself. Anyway, sit back, enjoy this episode. I know you're gonna love it. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, today, I want to welcome a very special guest to the Into the Impossible podcast. It's a friend of mine, a friend of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, and it's Deepak Chopra. And you may wonder why is Brian Keating, a professor of physics, an astrophysicist, talking to Deepak Chopra? I mean, Deepak, do you know what physicists tell me when I tell them I'm talking to Deepak Chopra? Do you have any idea what they might say? Pseudoscientist, bullshit, uh... What else? Uh, profound, uh, profound crap. <laughs> yes, but fake, yes, credulous. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I always tell them I know no one else who has is as intellectually honest as you. And I say that from years of knowing you and uh, observing you as an observer, although you're going to tell me if my observations are biased in any way. But to all the people out there, all the physicists that are snarking and turning off this interview, uh, you're really doing yourself harm because uh, what Deepak has to teach us is incredibly profound. And you might not agree with his, with his conclusions, but I uh, ask you to trust me if I've gleaned any credibility for you and you're still watching this video after 30 seconds of this disclaimer, uh, you will learn a lot about the most important attribute of a scientist and that's humility. And I think Deepak, we live in a, uh, in a simultaneous superposition 
of science and scientism, where we sort of worship science and we all think we know what science means. But as, uh, as I often point out, we really don't have a universal definition of science. And I call that the hard problem of, of consciousness <laughs> because the awareness of science is at an all time low, whereas our technology and our ability to damage other people is at an all time high. So today I wanna talk to you about uh, the, the impact that you've had on me which is really through your written word and uh, and also uh, having spoken with you on numerous occasions. I should point out that I'm basically the lowest level of your uh, physics support. There are people by the name of uh, Sir Roger Penrose, uh, who is a big booster of Deepak Chopra. There's a man by the name of Leonard Mladenow who once challenged Deepak at Caltech with the very same accusations that you just heard him level at himself. And who is one of your closest collaborators these days, Deepak? Right now, Menas Kapatos, who's a physicist, uh, uh, he used to be at Berkeley, and then he was at Chapman. He's from MIT. That's where he trained and got his PhD from MIT. And Menas is a very interesting man uh, who, uh, of course, is a proponent of the John Boyenman Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, which places him also in a controversial position right now. But uh, he's also very spiritual, and we we together go to spiritual retreats. Mm. And the other colleague I was referring to is Leonard Malad now, who uh, not only uh, endorsed this book, You Are the Universe, we'll be talking about this book today, but he also co-wrote a book with you uh, called, War, War, uh, two books, War, War of the Worldviews and uh, and another book about science and, and God. Um, I found them very duplicative though, uh, Tipak. Why, why is that? Why, why are there two books written by you and Leonard? No, no, there's only one book. I think I you're referring to the paperback. Yes, I'm joking. I'm joking. It has a different title in the UK, and that's the yes. one that I uh, I also yeah. read. So I'm just joking about that. But the other person who's become a very close associate of Deepak, so much so that he asked Deepak to endorse his book, is uh, none other than this man, former guest on the into the Impossible uh, podcast, Frank Wilczek. Now, if anyone wants to call Frank Wilczek uh, full of you know what, uh, I think they've got their work cut out for them. So Deepak said of this book, uh, for a century, science has invalidated soft questions about truth, beauty, and transcendence. It took some considerable courage for Frank Wilczek to declare such questions are within the framework of hard science. And that's sort of what you do. I see you as, as a bridge between uh, the notion of science and scientism as sort of a cure-all, and 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 as Arthur C. Clarke, the patron namesake of our organization here at UC San Diego, he said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And what is technology if not applied science? And so therefore, I think we live in an age where science is almost worshipped. And what do you make of that, Deepak, is our opening question? What do you think of the esteem that science is held in? You're an MD. Um, you're not a traditional research scientist uh, the way that, say, I am, or Frank Wilczek is. But what do you make of of, of the pedestal in which science finds itself these days? I think um, science is the biggest adventure that human beings have taken ever. And it's the scientific revolution is only 500 years old, um, which is nothing compared to our life on this planet, which is over 200,000 years as Homo sapiens. And of course, compared to life on our planet, other than human. 
And the agricultural revolution occurred 12,000 years ago. The so-called cognitive revolution, when humans started making up stories. Um, and the first stories were gossip, basically, which are still the most dominant stories of humankind. But then that led to other stories, mythology, religion. And then an explanation of those stories, uh, theology, philosophy. And now we have science. And science, as I said, only 500 years of that, the major breakthroughs in science may be since Newton and you know Descartes and, uh, at that time, the so-called European Enlightenment. But in the last 100 years, it, it, science has actually made such breakthroughs that make this conversation possible, right? Uh, make it possible for us to send probes into intergalactic space. Makes it possible for us through biological sciences to understand the workings of the human body. That's what I am, a physician. And by the way, we do do research at UCSD. Um, we are looking at the biological correlates of consciousness. And we published a lot of papers, uh, um, including some in Nature, on the effects of uh, reflective self-inquiry and meditation on things like tel telomeres. That work was done in collaboration with uh, Elizabeth Blackman, who's a Nobel laureate also in biology and physics. And she had never heard of what I do. And I convinced her to do the study. And once the study was completed, over a one week of a reflective, mindfulness, transcendent experience, the level of telomerase went up by 40%. Uh, that had never been seen. Gene expression change, that had never been seen. We've come a long way uh, through science. My only question is, and life as we know it wouldn't be possible without science. Uh, we, we, if we didn't have a vaccine right now, maybe the whole human population would be at risk uh, yeah. of a pandemic. And that's happened in the past. So science is the biggest, best adventure we've taken as human beings as part of our evolution. Um, but uh, is it uh, the only way of knowing what we call truth or fundamental reality? That's a whole different question. You know, so you made the distinction earlier between science, which is a methodology, theory, experiment, uh, observation, validation, falsification, and it progresses. Every day we learn something new and we realize that something we thought was we knew is not new. So, you know, the science is that way. The best story also because it's willing to change. Mm. It's not so dogmatic. But scientism becomes a religion. It says... This is the only way to know the truth, including myself. This is the only way to understand why we suffer, why we grow old, why we die, why we fear death, why we fall in love, why we have longing, aspiration, creativity, vision, insight, inspiration. Uh, you know, until I know that the dance of molecules and particles and force fields and gravity can do this, I also rely on my inner practice and reflections, who am I that wants to understand science? What am I that wants to understand the brain? What am I that wants to understand the cosmos? Now you can say I'm a cosmologist, but that's your training. 
who are you before you were a cosmologist? Why did you even choose to go into cosmology? So, you know, there's a part of us that is full of mystery, full of wonder, full of awe, full of questions, full of doubts, full of fears, full of aspirations, full of longings. I want to know what that is. And then I want to see how that corresponds to the experience of science, which is what's going on? What's out there? And I'm asking, yes, but who's asking the question? Who wants to know and why? I think about science as even the hard sciences as social science <laughs> in that uh, science is done by people. We, we have uh, some hopes and actually some progress in artificial intelligence. And as you and I and Frank Wilczek and Leonard Milan now talked about last week, I'm most interested not in artificial intelligence. I think intelligence is overrated sometimes, and I'll give some examples of that if you like. But uh, but really, wisdom is an in short supply, and wisdom is the pinnacle of science. I think of of you know my computer has a lot of knowledge, and in fact, science itself means knowledge. But I think of actual practical science where it impacts daily life as a process, and that is wisdom based. And wisdom is very different from knowledge. Uh, so science being a social enterprise, uh, that means that it's done by human beings. And human beings have fallacies, flaws, biases, and prejudices, some of which are uh, inherent, some of which are invidious, that they are poisonous to the human population. I can think of several scientists, uh, including uh, James Watson, uh, William Shockley, the inventor of the transistor. These people uh, were incredibly brilliant, both Nobel laureates, and both advocated in some form or another for philosophies that are eugenic in nature and or discriminatory, prejudice, bias, and still to this day, in the case of Watson, uh, it's really uh, uh, you know kind of out outrageous that he's still um, making such statements. But anyway, science is done by human beings. We have flaws, but I want to ask you a question that's really been plaguing me since I read uh, several of your books, but, but in particular, You Are the Universe asserts that effectively consciousness is a distributed uh, property and it is the result of matter. As you asked Frank Wilczek, you said, can matter create mind? What is your answer to that question? Does matter create mind or does mind create matter or something completely different? Something completely different. And since you um, asked about wisdom, let me tell you how I think about wisdom. I think of, um, of wisdom being very different from knowledge, knowledge being very different from information, and information being very different from data. So today, uh, the data would be maybe it's uh, 65 degrees uh, centigrade uh, Fahrenheit in San Diego. The information uh, would be, well, uh, it's a pleasant day and such and such activities are possible. The knowledge would be, what should I choose to do with this weather? And then wisdom would be, does this nurture the experience of sentience or life? And that is, in my mind, the hierarchy. Wisdom is the top of the pinnacle. Uh, if, uh, if you have... Knowledge without wisdom, knowledge can be diabolical. As you just said, we have atom bombs, we have climate change, we have extinction of species, we have mechanized death, we have cyber warfare, etc., etc. Uh, that's also an aspect of knowledge, but it's not an aspect of wisdom for certain. certain. 
With the same knowledge, we could actually create a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. Same knowledge, same information, same data, but a different awareness, a different uh, consciousness. So wisdom is the totality of consciousness that supports what I call evolution. But when I call evolution, I mean evolution of consciousness into expansion of awareness into how we know what we know or what are our modes of knowing. So when I go in that direction, then I begin to say that we need a conversation between those who are looking out there and those who are asking questions of themselves. Because the scientific method only gives us knowledge of a species-specific perception and cognition. Species-specific perception and cognition. Now, when we spoke to, um, to Frank Wilczek, he says, don't underestimate the properties of matter. So you just asked me, does matter create mind? Now, where I'm coming from, Brian, and this is where I get into trouble with the scientists, I don't believe in the existence of matter. I think matter is a human construct for a species-specific perception and its interpretation. Now, it's a very useful construct, right? Uh, because uh, we we are experiencing what we call matter all the time, including our own bodies, okay? Including our own bodies. But then as we look into the deeper nature of matter, as even Frank said, don't underestimate matter, it becomes more and more and more ephemeral. It becomes more and more transient. It becomes more and more ungraspable. You need a, you need a hadron collider to observe a Higgs boson, which has a life of 10 to the power of minus 22 seconds. So it's, you know, you need all this technology to see something, which by the time you observe it, it doesn't even exist. And then we say this gives mass to the universe, and it does. Now, here is the interesting thing. It doesn't matter what you call it, this mysterious entity. You can call it matter. But if we believe that matter does all the things that, you know, Frank said, it does include creating models of matter, then matter is God. I mean, if matter can think, visualize, long, aspire, then matter is God. And it's fine. Call it matter. Doesn't matter. You can call it Einsoff. Somebody else can call it whatever. But this is the mystery that matter ultimately turns out to be non-material. And what about the experiences of other species? What about the experience of an insect with a hundred eyes or a snake that navigates through infrared or a butterfly that senses ultraviolet or a chameleon whose eyeballs swivel on two different axes? What does the world look like to a chameleon? I can't even remotely imagine that experience. So why is the human experience absolute and human constructs absolute when we made them up? We made up the story of money. We made Wall Street. We made latitude. We made up Greenwich Mean Time. Why not Botswana Mean Time? So, you know, we have all these constructs. We embed ourselves in these constructs. And then we say that's reality. But no, that's not reality. It's partial reality. So uh, I want to dig deeper into that because I think it's uh, 
it's incredibly succinct in a way, and it's open to many different interpretations. And I hate when people misinterpret me and my guests. I want to ask you a question. Um, and we maybe have discussed this in the past. Do you believe that triangles exist? Like, do, do triangles have the same status as matter in Deepak's mind? So in my mind, existence is a better word for reality, existence. Because, by the way, that I didn't make that up. It comes from my tradition of contemplative inquiry. So existence means anything that exists. This phone exists. A triangle exists. Uh, at least in my uh, in my experience, okay, a circle exists in my experience. This body exists in my experience, but thoughts exist in my experience. Feelings exist in my experience. Imagination exists in my experience. Creativity ex exists in my experience. Emotions exist in my experience. So existence is anything that appears on the screen of consciousness, including triangles and galaxies and atoms and molecules, but also thoughts. So I don't make a distinction between mind and matter. They're complementary aspects of a deeper reality, which is neither mind nor matter. Uh, what is that deeper reality? It's formless. It has no form. So it, uh, how can I say that? Because if it had a form, if I would be able to see it. It doesn't have a form, right? Uh, I think so, I'm realizing why you might be controversial to scientists. And the yes. reason why involves, um, have you ever heard of the concept, the God of the gaps? This yes. notion. Yes. yes. So I think that sometimes scientists look at you and what you um, what you propose as sort of science of the gaps or consciousness of the gaps. In other words, whatever cannot be explained or defined without ultimate reductionism uh, becomes evidence of experience, consciousness, um, uh, emotions, however you like. And I once did an exercise. Somebody told me, if you go to Wikipedia, the source of all scientific wisdom and knowledge, and you go, even click on Deepak Chopra, I don't care, click on Brian Keating, and you click, keep clicking, the first word in every Wikipedia page, eventually, the, you will come down the rabbit hole of recursion, and you will get to philosophy. In other words, these concepts exist in, in the mind. Philosoph philosophical means love of wisdom, right? So I think that sometimes you're perceived as being um, overawed by the power of something that's hard to define. If even Wikipedia can't define what consciousness is, this is a truly hard problem of consciousness. And you and I have spoken along with Noam Chomsky and Stuart Hammerhoff and Sir Roger Penrose, recent winner of the Nobel Prize. And we talk about consciousness. And it seems to me the lack of universal definitions for something is a sign that maybe it's not within human uh, um, purview to explain. For example, you can talk to somebody about abortion, incredibly complicated, incredibly difficult, emotional subject. And you can say to them, I can make you and I agree on it, even if I'm pro-life and you're pro-choice, I can say, a baby doesn't exist before the parents met, before the parents were even in the same uh, lifetime. Um, and similarly, a baby exists after it's born and is in the hospital delivery room. Between those two states is a Schrodinger cat-like object which is in a superposition, but not according to science, but according to perception. And I feel like consciousness is like that as well. 
And so, you know, it's, it's almost as useless in some sense to me, and I want you to prove me wrong, to think about consciousness because we can't even come to a definition that is universally agreed upon. And so therefore people project their hostility to you and your, and your definition of consciousness. And that's why I think that you're held with some disregard in the scientific community. It's hundred uh, percent true. On the other hand, the definitions of consciousness in scientific circles are ambiguous, but they're not, and even in uh, philosophical circles, they're ambiguous, but not for those of us who come from spiritual traditions where consciousness is the only reality. So if you want a definition of consciousness, here it is. Consciousness is the knowing element in every experience. We are having that experience right now because we are conscious beings, okay? It's the knowing element. It's not just that I know, I know that I know. So consciousness also is self-awareness. Consciousness is that in which all experience occurs. I think you'll agree that this experience is occurring in consciousness. Consciousness is that in what in which all experience is known. I think you will agree that we know that we are having this experience. And the last part is difficult. Consciousness is that out of which all experience is made. So sound is a perception, which is a modified form of consciousness. So is seeing, so is hearing, so is tasting, so is smelling, so is thinking, so is feeling, so is imagining. So it's all perceptual activity in consciousness that allows us to create the constructs of mind and matter. Yeah. And consciousness itself is in the gap. Right now, if I wasn't going to see, if I close my eyes, imagine the Empire State Building, then I close, keep my eyes closed, imagine the face of my mother. Okay, now imagine Wall Street. Now imagine listening to John Lennon's Imagine. How did you do that? Explain to me scientifically, how did you create the image of the Milky Way galaxy just by thinking about it? Or you think of a rose. You have to return to the formless, to the gap in you in order to have that experience. So between every thought, there's a gap. If there wasn't, this would be brrrr. Okay, the fact that there's syntax, grammar, sequential unfoldment of ideas means that between every idea, there's a gap. Between every perception, there's a gap. Between every sensation, there's a gap. Between every thought, there's a gap. Between every image, there's a gap. And the gap is where all the action is. Now, if I wanted to give you an explanation of the gap in scientific terms at, and risk myself, because that's what I get, ridicule, the gap is potential. It's before your father looked at your mother with a gleam in his eyes, okay? That was in the gap, the potential for Brian to emerge nine months later after your dad looked at your mother with that longing. That's what so, I called my, my personal Big Bang. Your personal Big Bang. So you existed as potential in your father and your mother. And like that, everything exists in potential there's the form and there's formless. There's the manifest, there's the unmanifest. Mm -hmm. There's the perceived, there's the unperceived. And there are complementarities. Reductionism lets me look at the particular, but holism lets me understand what is actually going on. Even if I look at my own body, look at my own body, my blood pressure, my heart rate, my immune system, my endocrine system, 
they're all instantly correlated. There's no explanation for why feedback loops correlate with other feedback loops. It seems to me non-local. Now, of course, if I say that, again, I get ridiculed. Yeah. So what does the gap contain? It contains infinite possibilities, unpredictable. It makes quantum leaps of creativity and imagination. You had, when I asked you to think of John Lennon's song and think of your mother and then think of the, a rainbow, you took quantum leaps between one image and another. You didn't travel from one to the other. It is indeterminate. It is the source of attention and intention, and it is creative. So where consciousness is fundamental, it's the creative impulse of evolution that gives rise to perceptions and interpretations of perceptions through which we create models of reality. I think we need to understand both the formless and that which has formed. Without the gap, you can't have the space-time event. Space-time events are punctuations and syntax of the gap. As I told you when we were setting this up uh, and, and talking with your assistant, uh, who I love, uh, I said, I want to call this episode the Deepak of the Into the Impossible podcast uh, with yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, and Dr. Deepak Chopra, who's a real doctor, not like me. Uh, but, uh, but I want to call it Sensors and Sensibility because uh, the famous book Sense and Sensibility is sort of reminiscent of what we do as human beings. But I'm an experimental physicist. I think, I, I don't know how many experimental physicists you've had in contact with. You've certainly known a lot of uh, theoretical physicists like Frank Wilczek or Roger Penrose. You even knew Stephen Hawking, you know, Leonard Malad now, and you know many other people. And you've debated people because you have a extremely rare gift, which is that you're eloquent and courageous. And your eloquence will often be uh, be found most most uh, noticeably when you are being humble, as you were on the stage at Caltech when you first were confronted by this uh, by this you know somewhat uh, somewhat obstreperous Leonard Malad now uh, telling you that you don't know about quantum mechanics and I'll teach you about quantum mechanics and you were humble enough to accept that challenge. Deepak to say, um, would you like to have a short course in quantum mechanics sometime so that we can straighten out your slightly misuse of quantum notation? I, Thank you, I, I would be honored, sir, and I accept your offer with great gratitude. And uh, I would like to be educated so I can be clearer in my, um, in my dialogue. And we'll talk later about how uh, Arthur C. Clarke said, the only way to know the limits of what is possible is to venture beyond those limits into the impossible. And that's the name of this podcast. But anyway, I want to set, uh, defend the sensor community. So I am an experimental physicist. I build senses because they augment the reality that I perceive in that they transmutate uh, things that are in principle unobservable, like voltage. Voltage is not a sensor. We don't have a sensory organ for voltage. Sharks do, uh, but there are there are also sensors that no animal has a sensor for, such as neutrinos that experimental colleagues of mine have detected as they propagate from the bowels of a supernova explosion, literally millions of light years away to our telescopes here on Earth. And we use those to augment. The first thing that Frank said on our live stream, and I'll have a link to it up here, or maybe I'll put it over here when you're all watching this video, 
The first thing that Frank said, uh, I noticed he was slightly defensive when we got on the call last week, uh, and he's yeah, he's an exceptional human being. And I've noticed this with all my conversations with Nobel Prize winners, uh, that they, uh, uh, except for Sir Roger Penrose, he's he's extremely, um, you know, risk uh, risk philic. He he loves to take on new risky projects. But uh, let me just say with Frank, the first thing he said is, well, you know, consciousness doesn't have this role, and spirituality doesn't have this role because there's no detector that you have to tell the operator thereof that, oh, I was thinking about uh, about God at this moment, or I was thinking about this. Are there things that are extrasensory in that uh, we believe that they um, that they are operative in the universe from your perspective, consciousness potentially, uh, that have an effect, and could they be measured using tools in a laboratory? Because I think that would go a very long way towards uh, proving to whatever extent such a thing is possible, but more accurately, as you mentioned, falsifying. Maybe even Deepak, the mark of a good scientist that you are, would be to accept the falsification that consciousness can't be measured. Do you think consciousness is susceptible to the measurement technologies that my students and I employ in our laboratories? No, because consciousness is what measures. Consciousness is what measures. Consciousness conceives, governs, constructs and becomes what it measures. So let me explain that for a moment. Um, consciousness is not measurable because it is not observable. It is actually the basis of observing. When you do science, experiments are conceived in consciousness. They're designed in consciousness. Theories are constructed in consciousness. Observations are made in consciousness. You cannot reify consciousness as an object because the object itself is a perceptual interpretation in consciousness. Do you mean a bias so, that, you know, I didn't... Do you mean a bias, like I'm looking for gravitational waves from inspiring black holes, and therefore that constrains the answers I can get? Or do you mean... Yes, every observation is a selective observation. And in order to observe one thing, you have to ignore everything else. So what, yeah. about, uh, what about serendipitous discoveries, like the universe is accelerating in its expansion? What, that was not the... Actually, that was the opposite of what the observers expected to observe. But where was the serendipity understood? Where was the concept of serendipity itself? What is serendipity? What is correlation? These are all human concepts for modes of knowing and experience in consciousness. So you see, this is the problem with, with the reductionism is we are only looking at what's out there. We are never asking what is it that is observing. So consciousness is the observer, the process of observation, and that which is observed simultaneously. You need all three. You need an observer, you need a mode of observation, and then you need something that is known as the observed. And consciousness is all of those before it modifies itself into experience, which then we construct models of. So even the human body is a model in consciousness. There's no such thing as a human body, in my opinion, because, you know, when we talk of a human body, we think of it as a noun. But actually, the human body is a verb. It started as a fertilized ovum. It'll end in death. 
So if you say, I am my body, you have to define which one. Am I the fertilized egg? Am I the zygote? Am I the embryo? Am I the baby? Am I the toddler? Am I the teenager? Am I the middle-aged guy worried about uh, impotence? Am I the old guy worried about death? Which one am I? So you see, as soon as I make a material construct of, of anything, I have a problem. Every form turns out to be a phenomenon. And the phenomenon is an interpretation of perception and cognition in human consciousness, not in bacterial consciousness, not in the consciousness of a giraffe. Even the idea of a giraffe is in human consciousness. A giraffe doesn't know it's called a giraffe. A proton doesn't know it's called a proton. The Milky Way galaxy doesn't know it's called a Milky Way galaxy. So when I see an object, and Brian, you have to listen to this carefully, I'm not seeing the object. I'm seeing everything other than what the object is. You know, Immanuel Kant said, we see only the surface. We don't know the thing in itself. We never know the thing in itself. Now, of course, if you ask Frank, he'll say it's mass, charge, and, and momentum of spin. Okay, but who came up with that concept? On what basis? You cannot, as Max Planck said, get behind consciousness. Right. You so. just can't. I think so. I think all these things, and I think consciousness is not alone. I think there are chicken and egg type problems. Oh, by the way, Deepak, my son, one of my sons came up with a solution to determine which came first, the chicken neither, or the egg. Neither, neither, That they're complementarities again. You know, no, 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 you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong, Deepak. My son went to amazon.com. He oh. ordered a chicken and he ordered an egg and the egg came first. Okay, good. <laughs> I get it. Well, I do agree with you that these are, um, you know, in, in incredibly vexing problems. I, I note, though, that you must have a code in which you live your life. I know you have a code. I have a code that's very different from yours. I'm a Torah practicing Jew and it has a very different perspective on life and the meaning and the hierarchy of life. We as Jews put uh, human life at the apex. And that is how I believe we can define an absolute sense of morality in the absence of which I don't think you can. Sam Harris has said, essentially, you could get all the laws of, of, you know, of morality and, and how uh, what is truly eth you know, right, not the laws of ethics. I think the golden rule, the silver rule, those are kind of universally accepted in some sense. But morality, you know, who, is, who is to say that you know, eating a potato uh, is the same is not the same as eating a chicken. If you know, I say they both have eyes, uh, and I know you're, you you practice uh, vegetarianism or veganism. I forget which one, but but the but the point is, uh, in Judaism, we are not allowed to eat a person. <laughs> That's explicitly forbidden, and yet we are entitled to eat animals. And so, my question to you is: Can uh, this notion of consciousness? How does it dovetail? How does it allow one to? consume for their purposes uh living material maybe even unconscious material uh and uh or conscious material rather and what what on what basis do you uh, in, in your practice uh can you justify that so human consciousness is the pinnacle of the evolution of consciousness is and all biological organisms are conscious agents and each conscious agent, you know, I'm using terms carefully right now because these are loaded terms when you use soul, spirit, God, ein Sof, they're loaded terms. So conscious agent is any, any sentience 
that is capable of responding to its environment or even making a choice. Some, uh, so we as humans have the highest expression of that because we are self-aware and we have what is called explanatory power. You know, we try to explain things. Uh, the Big Bang, okay, so what caused the Big Bang? What happened in Planck epoch? Uh, are there laws of physics at the Planck scale of uh, space-time geometry? On and on. Why is mathematics so effective in predicting the behavior of the physical world? It's obvious that human consciousness is at the pinnacle. Now, as far as violence and um, in nature is concerned, that's another very interesting thing because without violence, there wouldn't be the food chain. There would not be anything that we call life. Uh, life is based on, on biological organisms eating each other up all the time. So, you know, uh, without violence, there's no life. But as we expand our awareness, as we become, and again, I'm being very careful here how I say this, human consciousness is almost godlike. It's divine, it's diabolical, it can create anything that it imagines. It has already created everything it imagines. It can also destroy anything that is there. So we are as self-aware beings definitely have divinity, by divinity I mean creative power, creative power. We can, you know, um, Frank said the other day, I can, with my thoughts, I can move my, my arm, but I can't move your arm, but I can. If I tell you to move your arm, you'll move your right. arm. Right. Also, I, yeah. also, as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm moving molecules in your brain. I'm moving networks, uh, neural networks in your brain. I'm moving all kinds of things, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, depending on the conversation. You're cortisol. moving a lot of viewers to my YouTube channel, and I appreciate And that. all these people are That's biologically, right. all these people are biologically entangled with us. All these people right this moment, are by everybody who's listening to us, we are entangled in biology, in mind space, in consciousness space. Of course, we're calling it cyberspace, but the cyberspace is the vehicle for our limited bandwidth of experience as human beings. But as you said, we can extend that through scientific technology, we are extending it. What we call everyday reality, according to spiritual traditions and monistic traditions, monistic idealism or monistic non-dualism, in those traditions, the formless potential is the only reality. Everything else is an evanescent, ephemeral, transient, ungraspable experience that we codify as mind, matter, and the universe. There's no such thing. It's a human construct. So I want to take a step from this ethereal plane that we are on to uh, what we in Hebrew call the talkless, the practical, the mundane, but the important. 
Um, how do you organize your life? Uh, you're in your early 70s now. You've written uh, dozens of books. I think you're writing a book with your right hand while we're talking right now. That's how productive Deepak Chopra, today's guest on the Into the Impossible podcast is. Um, when you were younger and you were and, you, and your daughter uh, was young and, and uh, uh, you were starting off in your career, how did you come to make choices on a daily basis? Um, wh what I mean is between consumption of information and production of new ideas, new creativity, new collaborations, how did you handle the ties that you had, the obligations you have, first of all, to your, to your family first? Um, how do you deal with those um, those those constraints and maintain your your uh, productivity? So I'm, I'm asking two things. Uh, basically, what's your daily ritual like now, and how do you handle uh, the guilt? I call it producer's guilt that we have when we have to say no to our toddler in order to do something, and we lie and we say, "Oh, it's to make money, and that's going to help them." But that's a lie. A lot of it's for ourselves and our own gratification of our egos. So, what's your daily routine like? Number one, and number two, how do you handle saying no to the people you love the most? I can answer those two questions, but I should tell you that right through internship, residency, fellowship, neuroscience, neuroendocrinology. I was a driven person, ambitious, and trying to be successful in my career. Okay. Now, in the background, ever since the age of six years of age, I've been mystified and troubled by the fact that existence is so impermanent. So I remember when I was six years of age, um, I was living with my grandparents. And my father was a cardiologist and he was uh, training in England. And one day we got a telegram. And the telegram was that my father had uh, uh, become a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians as a cardiologist. In post-colonial India, that was a big deal. So my grandfather, who was a World War I veteran, Indian, went to the roof, fired some rounds into the sky took me and my little brother, who later became the Dean of Medical Education at Harvard Medical School. My brother was four years, I was six years. He took us to the carnival, took us to a movie called Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, took us out for dinner, and then in the middle of the night, he died. And uh, the next day he was taken to cremation. And one of my uncles said, what is a human being? Last night, he was, um, celebrating with the kids. His son had become a member of the Royal College of Physicians. And today he's a bunch of ashes in that jar. And I had at the age of six years, my first existential crisis. My little brother, who, as I said, became the Dean of Education at Harvard, his skin started peeling. Went to every doctor in the world, nobody could make a diagnosis. There was a healer who said he's feeling vulnerable, so he's shedding his skin, metaphorically. When his parents come back, he'll be fine. And that's exactly what happened. So I think in retrospect, that was my first existential crisis and also my first understanding of mind and body as being inseparable. I went to medical school for that reason. But when you go to medical school, the first lesson is anatomy. You see a dead body, 
you're supposed to understand life by looking at a dead body. But it gets better. Physiology, biochemistry, now mathematics, all it understanding biology. So I was very troubled all my life by impermanence. As a doctor, I saw grief. Within one hour, I saw people going through the stages of death, the heart attack, so anger, denial, hostility, and then fear, and then helplessness, and then resignation, and then death. And I, I felt deep compassion for human suffering, deep, deep compassion for human suffering. So what is my life right now? The number one thing in my life is all life is sacred. All life is sacred. We Even the internet talk. trolls who call you a hack and a... Sacred, yeah. sacred. They're doing the best they can from the conditioned mind. Even Trump is doing the best he can from where he is in his awareness. So there is no other pursuit than expanding our awareness in science, in the arts, in sociology, in human relationships, in emotional connections. There is no bigger endeavor. Wisdom is the sanctity of life. Having said that, we have to eat. And therefore, we minimize violence. That's why I'm a vegetarian. I minimize violence, knowing that I'm still violent in my eating habits at some level. I also realize that as a human being, 99.9% .9 of the information in my body is bacterial, it's microbes. I, I revere the sanctity of life of microbes, including COVID, because without microbes, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, so this holism makes me feel sacred. Now, what's my daily routine? Yeah. First 25 years, my tradition, maximum education. Second 25 years, maximum success. Third 25 years, maximum giving back. Now I'm entering my fourth stage. That is preparation for death. And so I very joyfully celebrate impermanence. I ask myself every day, who is it that's going to die? And I can't answer the question. What is going to die? Because my body as an embryo is dead already. My body as a teenager is dead already. I don't have the personality of a 15-year-old. What is going to die? What is my identity? I think that's the biggest crisis of existence. What is identity? And this is how I keep myself busy right now. I have no personal motivation in the world, honestly. I have no personal ambition in the world, honestly. My only goal right now is to prepare for the impermanence of existence as I know it and to be at peace with it and see how I can realize my true nature independent of science or philosophy or theology or any human construct. Who am I without constructs? That is my own quest. Hmm. Well, I don't think I've ever heard you say it so succinctly, but I think that that's uh, very... Uh, extremely deep and meaningful way to think about life. 
And I wonder, yes, in the in the early stages of life and, uh, you know, producing and growing and maximal, maximizing the education, there is one trait, which I wonder if you would uh, agree with me on, that you can maintain at all four of those 25-year quarter century marks, and that is curiosity. And I see that in you. I see that um, I once heard, you know, somebody, maybe it was Warren Buffett or, or maybe it was somebody talking about Warren Buffett. They said, you know, I can't have Warren Buffett's uh, I can't have his wealth just by thinking about having wealth, uh, but I can be as satisfied with what I have as what he is satisfied with, with what he has. Uh, but also I can be as uh, ethical as he is, as moral as he is to whatever, I don't know him personally, but but to whatever extent you think that he is. Uh, and then I add to that, you can be as curious as he is or as anybody is. And I think that that is a hallmark of who you are is this relentless passion for curiosity. Do you believe that life is possible to extend, not physically, but through uh, things like transcendental meditation? And, and I, the first time I met you, I had a lot of temerity. I said, Deepak, I need a mantra. I've tried transcendental meditation. I can't do it. I've tried mindful meditation. I can't do it. Can you give me a mantra that will stick? And you said, you schmuck. So I've been doing that. I've been saying you schmuck. I, I do it. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't do that. But um, if you if you had uh, to guess at the actual way that life can be extended, I happen to think I know the answer to how one can extend one's life to whatever way we have of teleporting our physical and mental nature into the future. I have a proposal for that, uh, but I'm more interested in your proposal. How can I extend my life on a daily basis and add more meaning to my life through a daily practice, through meditation? What, what do you recommend for those of us who are live a lot up here and, and find it hard to get out of our doubting, you know, kind of monkey mind uh, perspective? From a spiritual perspective, you extend life by number. By the way, curiosity, of course, is a trait of all sentient beings, not just humans. You look at a baby, you look at a mouse, you look at a cat, they're all curious. Humans, though, go a little bit beyond that. They want explanations for their curiosity. That's a human, and without that explanatory part, there wouldn't be human civilization. That is a trait of consciousness itself. Curiosity and explanatory part and modeling is a trait of human consciousness. Now, extension of life, from a spiritual perspective, number one, eat less. Number two, breathe slowly. Take your time to breathe. Number three, speak less. And number four, quieten your mind. So it's at all levels, material, emotional, physiological, and ultimately at the level of pure self-awareness or transcendence. Now our studies, which we have just mentioned with Elizabeth Blackburn and others, show that uh, um, actually these practices extend life. Uh, telomerase level went up by 40%. All the genes that are responsible for homeostasis or self-regulation went up some 17-fold over baseline. All the genes that were responsible for inflammation and chronic illness, including heart disease and diabetes, went down. So one of our collaborators in the study was from Mount Sinai in New York. And uh, he was presenting the study, he was showing this uh, slide. 
And he was showing, you know, telomerase went up and gene expression went in the direction of homeostasis and uh, away from uh, uh, inflammation. So somebody in the audience, he said, Dr. Shark, his name is Eric Shark. Uh, he said, uh, do you meditate? He said, no. He said, are you planning to? He said, no. He said, why not? You just showed us the data. He said, yeah, I'm going to figure out how to make drugs out of this. <laughs> So actually, he left Mount Sinai. He's now using the IPs of the studies to actually develop drugs out of the experience of meditation. So, you know, there's room for everyone here. There's room for the technologists. There's room for the reductionists. I don't think there's any drug that could create the synchronistic, holistic, uh, correlated, symphony of events in the body other than consciousness. No drug can do that because the drug is one element in the whole framework of inseparable coherence. Uh, you might call it creativity. You might call it uh, entanglement. You might call it superposition of ideas, whatever you want to call it. There's a deep mystery at the heart of creation and that mystery is the mystery of who am I? So if I ended up in another galaxy or another planet, my first question would be, what am I doing here and why am I here? And is what I'm perceiving a construct in my mind, an experience of perceptual activity? Did awareness travel? Awareness never travels. Awareness is just is. It creates models and stories and constructs and perceptions and sensations and images and feelings and thoughts. But that's who I am. I am the mystery. And without knowing my mystery, there's no other mystery. Right. That's as uh, Walt Whitman said, do I contradict myself? Yes. Very well, then. I contain multitudes. And I think you have a great deal of multitudes in you, not just the microbes that you spoke about earlier, but uh, a refreshing breath of uh, creative ideas and curiosity. And I'll only, um, you know, just, just as a sidelight, highlight rather, what you said about curiosity. Yeah, cats have it. And the, the most mendacious or, or, you know, unfortunate aspect of associating cats in curiosity, especially with children, as Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist uh, Barry Barish said on the podcast, I'll put it up here. He said that curiosity killed the cat sends an awful message to young children that you shouldn't be curious, that you should suppress it. And actually, one of your fellow MDs and practitioners of meditation, Dr. Judson Brewer, at my alma mater, Brown University, he actually believes that curiosity can uh, can be responsible for things like addiction, breaking addic addictions, smoking, even drug use, even re re reducing food and cravings for food. So I like to say, I've, I thanks to him and curiosity, I was able to drop five pounds from my double chin to my belly. So that's been very helpful to me. I thank him. I want to conclude uh, with uh, with a a very brief take from you about this article that uh, uh, was presented by the New York Times uh, back in October. And it was about, uh, the title is how to, how to Disagree Like an Adult 
according to Deepak Chopra, they, they, they call you a new age celebrity, which I think is, is, is kind of nonsense. I do love the pictures, uh, which depict uh, Tory Pines glider port and you and your sandals perched precariously. I'll put a link to that in the show notes below. But I, I really uh, enjoyed this piece. And I think that we want to have more conversations with other scientists using this framework that you lay out. And I'm just going to put them on there and say, if you only, uh, if you only could apply one of these principles that you put out there, ranging from choose if you want to engage, um, uh, engage first, you have to listen. Three, learn about the other person's values. Four, try awareness and pause Five, don't engage in black and white thinking. And when confronted, stop, take a deep breath, smile, and then make a choice. Which of those, if you only could choose one, or maybe it's impossible to only choose one, what is the most important of Deepak's uh, seven commandments here, or eight commandments? Maybe they're nine, nine commandments, sorry. There's only one, right? See, before you react, press, press the pause button, step into the gap, and watch your reaction to react. That'll break the circus. Just instead of being reactive, pause and observe your reaction to react. That'll break the circuit. And by the way, curiosity didn't kill the cat. Your curiosity allowed you to determine whether it was dead or alive. <laughs> I say Marie Curie killed the cat because the Geiger yeah. counter goes off because of her <laughs> laws. Of <laughs> okay, the last segment that we have on the Into the Impossible podcast is the final three questions. If you have just a couple more minutes, Deepak, I would sure. love to ask you these questions. I, I enjoyed this very much, yeah, Brian. Uh, and thank you for not ridiculing me. I would never do that. I have uh, respect for you, not only because I know you personally, uh, but I respect your, your humility. I think you are a science a scientist in the way that you approach these things and in the research that you're doing, as you point out as well. Uh, I, uh, I could spend all day with you, but I know you're extremely busy. So I'm just going to finish up by asking these questions that I ask all my guests. And I'm in the office of Jeff Burbage, who is uh, one of the greatest astrophysicists of the previous uh, previous millennium century. And he was a close colleague of giant Narlikar. Uh, who is in India to this day in Pune, and he started their cosmology center. Uh, I asked him this question. I want to ask you this question now, Deepak. Um, in your ethical will, in your zava'a, what you want to communicate to future generations, not in material form, not in tangible physical form, because we know that impermanence of that, what would you put in your ethical will that you want to communicate to your biological offspring, but also your ideological offspring? So I would say on the level of feeling, the ethics is empathy, compassion, love, joy, equanimity, and kindness, and alleviation of suffering on the emotional level. On the intellectual level, the seeking always of truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, curiosity, wonder, and humility. Um, and before you say what's going on, always asking who's asking. Very good. The next question is also about the future, and it connects to uh, the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey by Kubrick. And this movie, have you seen the movie 2001? Yes. yes, yes. yes. So yes. the opening scene features these hominids, and they're on the plains of the savannah of Africa. And they're exploring and they come upon this huge monolith and they don't know what to do with it. They hit it with their bones and they try to do stuff to it. Nothing happens. Then later, 
uh, thousands, millions of years later, we come up with a, uh, we come up to find that human beings have a, uh, have a encountered the same monolith structure, but on the surface of the moon. So now they've developed technology, maybe far in advance of, of the hominids, certainly, but maybe far short of what the aliens wanted us to encode. My question for you is, if you had a time capsule like these monoliths that would last for a billion years, what would you inscribe upon it? What would you put within it, knowing that it would last for essentially the remainder of existence? So Brian, across the seas of both outer space, which you explore, and inner space, which I explore, across the seas of space, inner and outer, are the raw materials of a new imagination. We have a future that even Homer never imagined. We have a future that no one ever imagined. I, I can just tell you that I can see in a few, less than a millennium, or less than a century, seeding intergalactic space and planets with human life and life of all kinds with just information technology, using information, DNA sequential codes, teleportation to create biospheres in exoplanets. I see adventures that will understand what we understand the theoretically right now, whether it's teleportation or uh, you know, extrasensory perception, which we are already doing right now. This is extrasensory perception, you know, through Zoom or whatever. So I see adventures of imagination actualizing into reality that are at the moment unimaginable. You know, Rumi, the poet, said, "When I die, I will soar with angels. But when I die to the angels, what I shall become, you cannot imagine." So for us to see the future. In the distance, we don't even have the imagination yet. <laughs> Very good. We can't even conceive upon it. We're like those uh, alleged uh, tribes in in South America when they come upon a, a boat, they can't visualize what it means, uh, and they don't process it because their awareness has not yet advanced, but that doesn't necessarily impute superiority, of course. So the last question that I ask all my guests, Epoch, now involves going to the past. And it involves essentially life advice to your former self. When you were getting maximum education, maximum uh, success, uh, maybe in your 20s uh, or, or so, the life advice you'd give, and it's encapsulated in the name of this podcast. So Arthur Clarke had many different maxims. I already said one of them is uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's actually read in his own voice at the opening of each of one of the Into the Impossible podcasts. His uh, second law was that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And his third law is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That's how I got the name of this podcast. So I want to ask you, when you were a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, what life advice would you most benefit uh, from knowing to allow you to have the courage to go into the impossible? See, if I had given myself that advice to the, my 20-year-old, I wouldn't have listened to myself. <laughs> you know, I was 20-year-old, I was smoking cigarettes, enjoying alcohol, 
dating girls, getting stressed about my exams, wondering where I would get my internship. No advice would have helped me. At every stage of life, there is what you do is what you do. Now, in hindsight, I don't regret it all. You know, every stage is a learning stage. The only thing I would say is the impossible is just a word for something that hasn't happened yet. That's it. And in fact, the impossible is the field of all possibilities. The impossible is the infinite. The impossible is whatever is not possible today is going to be possible tomorrow. I may not live to see it, but um, creativity and consciousness and awareness have no limitations. That's the definition of infinity. Infinity is not a number. It just means no limits. Reminds me of what I believe Eleanor Roosevelt said. The word impossible really means I'm possible. That's very good. I love that. Well, Deepak, uh, I love what you do. I love your spirit. I love your courage. And I love your curious uh, and mercurious nature that just uh, acts as an inspiration, not just for me, but for millions of people around the world that you've helped, you've healed. Uh, you've done tremendous good in the world, and I only hope to do a fraction of that with your uh, guidance as an inspiration to me, and uh, I've certainly benefited from it. So thank you so much for going into the impossible. Stay well and stay in touch. Thank you, Brian. I hope we meet soon after this uh, madness is over and uh, have some fun together. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello, I'm Stuart Valko, producer of Into the Impossible. If you enjoyed this episode with Professor Brian Keating, please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, rating and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you and read every review and comment. And we're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. And join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's Dr. Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Shalom is the perfect mantra to transcend. Not schmuck, shalom. <laughs> Okay, now you heard it here. Nobody else can use that out there. It's only private, personal for Brian Keating.